You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. Hi, I'm Allie Kane. Welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building and growing consumer brands. When we launched a line of fresh sauces for grocery stores, I knew we were jumping into something crazy. Haven's Kitchen is a cooking school, cafe, and event space. A product that people buy in grocery stores is an entirely new business, and I had a lot to learn. So in my efforts to get myself educated, I started meeting everyone I know and respect who could advise me on production and distribution, sales and legal, PR, and social media. And then I started having those conversations here as a podcast so that other entrepreneurs can learn from them as well. This is the story of Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, for my 20th episode, I'm speaking with Pat Jemay, a bit of a legend in the world of marketing. After starting his career at Honest Tea, Pat took on field marketing at Sir Kensington's, eventually becoming VP of marketing at the company. One of the nicest guys I know, and honestly, someone who can sell anything to anyone. I'm super excited to have Pat here today. Hi, Pat. Hey, how's it going, Allie? Good. Um, so first off, before we get into your whole life story and we dive deep into your deepest, darkest wishes, <laughs> um, can you define marketing and sort of define out field marketing a little bit because I didn't know what field marketing was until I got into this whole CPG world. And I think of marketing as sort of this bigger thing, but you do both. So can yes. you kind of give me an overview of them both? Sure. I mean, so marketing and you know can play a, a bunch of different roles depending on what, what industry you're in, what category you're in. The role it plays in your company can it definitely lives on a spectrum in my mind, but at, at its simplest, I think marketing is really finding a way to connect with your consumers mm -hmm. and your customers, um, and create awareness and trial and, um, and just create growth and awareness for your company. So a lot of times that means working with retailers to expand your presence. It means finding the consumers that are looking for the problem you're solving and making them aware that there's a solution. Um, so it's really connecting with with your customers and your consumers. And how, I mean, that's interesting, right? Because I also didn't know the difference between a customer and a consumer before I got into the grocery world. So break that down a little bit, because I think people just think people who buy the product, but they're not just people who buy the product. Right. So so most food companies that are that are in your pantry, that are in your fridge, that, that you love and know, you're not buying directly from them. You know, nowadays with, with, with the rise of direct-to-consumer and e-com, it's happening a lot more. But traditionally, when you walk into a supermarket, you're buying something from a grocery store who's mm -hmm. purchased it from a distributor who's purchased it from us. Right. So oftentimes when you think about it, there, there are kind of two layers of disconnection between a brand um, and, the, and the end consumer. So for right. us, a distributor would be our customer, Right. whereas two layers down, our actual consumer, the person who's actually using the product, um, is you know the person buying it at the right. store. So. And in my case, like I know, you know, we were just talking about this, like, and I've talked about it before on the show, you know, for a refrigerated sauce that's vegan, 
we're being bought primarily by dairy buyers at grocery stores. So people who don't know what chimichurri is or Romesco is, and it's certainly not dairy. And so trying to speak to them and explain to them what the product is, is a very different message than, hey, home cook, you know, you don't have time, put the sauce on your food. Like two totally different messages. Right. And then field marketing, give me a little bit of an overview of that. So field marketing, and like I'll take that example you just gave where, mm-hmm. you know, it does take a little more education, a little bit more understanding from a grocery team of what the product is and why it should be in a certain set. So when you have a field, field marketing is really connecting with customers and consumers mm-hmm. in person, through an experience, um, in, in the field, basically, in the real world. And that's you know, like demos. That's that, that could be anything from demos, events. Mm-hmm. You know, field marketing also can play a bunch of different roles within the company, depending on what industry category is, the way the rest of the, the organization is built. You know, sometimes you see te- organizations with leaner sales teams mm-hmm. where field marketing kind of plays a role with merchandising and sales development more so. When you see an organization that has a fully built out sales team, then oftentimes field marketing is more just consumer focused, end consumer focused, acquiring them, sampling to them, right. um, and just reaching them in other ways. So field marketing can run a whole spectrum of what it can mean for your company. Um, you know, and it's important to know that going in is right. to not just say, okay, field marketing, demos and events and guerrilla sampling. Right. Because, you know, field marketing at its best, it's got to be prescriptive and diagnostic for what your brand needs and for what your kind of sales strategies are and, and your strategies on the actual brand side of how you want to show up to your consumer. So field marketing oftentimes can, can be the, the, the in-between between sales and marketing right. and then how you show up to a customer. Right. It's interesting because I think, you know, until... The last several months, I didn't even know that I needed that. I thought you had operations, and they made the product, and sales sold the product, and tidy. Right. But actually, there's this third leg, you know. I right. think, and it's a really valuable third leg, especially when you have a product that needs a little bit more. Like we were talking about some products, you know, you just know they're a better for you version than something that's already there that you've been accustomed to. But a product like mine needs a lot more sort of education and a lot more people out there kind of teaching people what it is, consumers and customers. Right, and right. Field, market, free field marketing, whether it's a consumer or the grocery manager, offers a great way to just, through human contact, through through an interaction, um, and building a relationship to get more mind share for your, for your, for your brand. When you think yeah. about consumers and even grocery managers, they're just inundated with like hundreds yeah. and thousands of they brands that of put me on your shelf, put me on your shelf, give me a display. And consumers mm-hmm. are just being marketed to every way they turn. Yeah. So whenever you can use film marketing to kind of break through the clutter and, and get more mind share and just get noticed um, and, yeah. and tried, um, that's a huge win. Awesome. Okay, now going back to you as a young boy. <laughs> um, because I always, I love these things because everyone always sort of has no one you didn't study field marketing in fourth grade you probably didn't go to high school thinking you were going to be in field marketing uh in your life but yet there was probably something about you even from a young age i know you come from a hospitality background so i know you're a people person family um but as like a fourth grader what did you think you wanted to be Wow, as a fourth grader, I think at the time, at the, as a fourth grader, I uh, actually wanted to be the general manager of the New York Yankees. Okay. <laughs> that was kind of my, my big dream. I Always love really... everyone's, I, I mean, <laughs> Lauren from Excel Foods, who's now like an investor, yeah. did, did you happen to hear what she, she wanted to be a Nick City dancer, <laughs> also an orthopedic surgeon, so wow. she could be on the floor dancing, but also if someone got injured, 
tend to them. There so we go. And just the fact that that's like what <laughs> she wanted to be in fourth grade is amazing. And so you wanted to be the GM of of the New York Yankees. The Yankees, yes. like George Costanza. Costanza, exactly. Yes, yeah, exactly. Big Seinfeld All right. fan. And is that because you were a sports guy? You know, I was always a huge fan of uh, the Yankees Die Hard. We watch almost every game. Right. Um, just the whole notion of, of putting a team together. Yeah. Well, that's what make, it makes sense, uh, right? right? Which is funny now because that's what I do for work. But mm-hmm. put, putting teams together, finding talent that complements each other, um, you know, taking into account culture amongst other things. It's not just about the stats on, on paper. Mm-hmm. It's about the intangibles and the kind of in between the stat lines. So just that whole notion of like every season trying to put together you are basically building the Yankees every time you build a team. Well, hopefully that that's the goal. And so where was your first you went to school? Did you you have a twin? I have a twin brother. And did yes. you guys go to school together? We went to grammar school and high school together. Okay. Um, but always kinda you know, we weren't one of these sets of twins that did everything together and had the exact same friends. We were very mindful of kinda having our own lives. Right. But yeah, we went, you know, shared a room together, went to school together up until we were about 18, and right. then we split ways for college, which, okay. which was great. It was it was definitely good, uh, you know, tough to be away from your twin brother, but a great right. way to kind of grow and evolve on your own as an individual. I tend to really like people that are twins. I've just noticed that. Like, a bunch of my friends over the course of my life have been twins. Interesting. Just a side note. <laughs> <laughs> Neither here nor there. So did you, what did you study in college? Did you study marketing? No, I did not. I studied accounting. Oh my gosh, yes. really? Yeah, going into college, like, I... You're so not... You have like this big personality yeah. and you, like, you're like you so gregarious. I, no offense to accountants out there, but <laughs> I don't see you accounting. Well, I, maybe I was trying to disrupt the accounting world, but... Okay. <laughs> no, but seriously, I, you know, I didn't have a clear idea. I think once I got to around college, I realized I wasn't going to be GM of the Yankees. Right. Um, oh, and I started... You know, I, I was always, uh, always really good in math growing up, um, so I figured, let me head in that direction and I'll right. figure it out along the way. And uh, yeah, in between my junior and senior year, I got an internship at Honesty, uh, field, field marketing and field sales. Right. So was, you applied for that. I applied for that. Yes. And did you know what you were applying for? Not really. I just remember reading the job description, and and it's saying that this was a field position that you'd be out and about every day, right. and I was like, wow, that'd be awesome. I just get getting paid to kind of run around the city and <laughs> just be outside all summer. I was like, this is great. I didn't, you know, at that point, three years into an accounting degree, I started getting a little claustrophobic at the thought of just sitting in a cubicle for like 30 years. And right. Oh, so I started, I was kind of like looking for something and uh, my twin brother Nick actually sent me the internship because uh-huh. it was posted at the Georgetown Career Center. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, and it worked out and I got the internship and that summer was insane. It was like, wait, this is, this is work. People get paid for this. To so just, what like, were you doing? I mean, as an intern, you were so, running around from store to store and yeah. So we were primarily, you know, we, this was honesty back in 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had just launched with a big distributor called big geyser. Um, they're mm-hmm. one of the biggest and well-known DSD, um, distributors. Um, they built vitamin water and smart water and we had just launched with them a few years ago and they were a big focus of ours. So w- one of my priorities was to be able to, was to go in there at like 6 a.m. every day. Right. Because distributor world, their trucks are going out the door at 6.30. Yeah. And to just kind of create buzz and to get, uh, you know, Big Geyser is an owner-operated distributor. Right. So all these guys own their routes. They're not just like employees of right. the distributor. They own their routes and they have a lot of autonomy. And this is where, this is one of the first big lessons I learned in field marketing mm-hmm. is that relationships um, are are paramount if you're trying to get things done. If you're trying to disrupt and you're trying to bend the rules and get things done that aren't... Like getting second and tertiary facings. Exactly. (laughs) No, I mean, the difference between... I'll explain that later, Matt. The the difference between one of these route owners selling the hell out of your product and not even 
pretending like you exist. It was right. that they liked you. Yeah. And if you spent the day with them and you went on a route ride and they loved you, all of a sudden they're calling you the rest of the week saying, hey, I got this new account. Hey, I'm pushing. And all of a sudden they're an extension of you and they're pushing it for you. So you just basically just, you you hit the ground running. Like right. you got to Honesty and you figured out the special sauce like pretty much the minute that you got there. And it happened to align perfectly with your naturally winning personality. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, my, my first week on the job, they put me with this like really like rough around the edges, hard nosed distributor guy who, who was notorious for not wanting to ride with anybody. Right. He would ditch people mid ride. Like, <laughs> oh my God. He's just a horror story. And for some reason we just hit it off first thing in the morning. And this was like a very untapped source of cases for honesty at the uh-huh. time. It was Washington, the Washington Heights area, believe it or not, right. with the hospital and the schools up there. There's, yep. there's it's a, Great place for honesty. So we ended up like tripling sales in oh just three gosh. weeks there. And everybody was like, what's going on? We could never. And it was just relationship based. You know, I would take him yeah. out for a nice lunch and hang a carrot in front of him. But how did you know, like, how did you know intuitively how to do that? I mean, does that come? I mean, I know you got your mom, t- like your, your parents had a restaurant. Yes. Yes. So did that, were you just, was it in your bones maybe to just think of taking someone out for a meal? I mean, a college kid wouldn't normally think of doing that or... Well, would be just too nervous sitting in the truck. Like, how did, what, what well, happened? Well, you know, it's funny that, uh, I mean, early on when uh, when you start going out with these guys, you realize that it really is all, there's so much human discretion. Like, if they don't like you, they're not going to sell you. So yep. I think just coming from a hospitality background, you realize yep. how much uh, how much connecting with people and almost having kind of a like a service-oriented <laughs> approach to, like, I'm here to support you, I'm here to right. help you, um, really goes a long way. And I think he felt that early on. And, mm-hmm. and we connected over a couple of other, like, really small, funny things right off the bat. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it really all comes down to human discretion a lot of times. Yeah. I mean, human discretion is way more it, – it's way more – it, it's it's a bigger thing than most people give it credit for. You know what's interesting is that I've had a few like supply chain and operations people on, and they've said the exact same thing. And that's not a f- area of this whole you know process that you would think would be as human oriented. Right. You know, you're just you're making the widget, you're selling the widget, right? right? Except that the widget might not get to where it needs to get to unless you're friendly with the guy who's driving the truck. And right. the only way you get to be friendly with the guy who's driving the truck is if you ask him questions about his life and know him and he genuinely thinks that you're human on the other end of the phone that he wants to help. Right. Right. I mean, it's 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 a very relationship and that's why at the end of the day it's so much fun, I think. Yeah. You know, cuz we're all we're all making products, but it's really about building connections. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, I always used to say this at, uh, at Sir Kensington. So no matter what you think about in a company, the product, the website, any, any kind of distributor for any or any, everything has a human at its genesis or a human behind it. Mm-hmm. So there is, at the end of the day, human discretion behind all of it. Right. Um, so even something as simple as, I remember I used to be on the road all the time with Honesty and the expense policies were very, very light. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, sometimes finding a good hotel was tough and... You know, believe it or not, you think that a hotel has a standard rate. If you just walk up to the <laughs> counter and you start befriending them and you're like, hey, what's a friends and family rate? Like, right. everybody, they all have discretion. All of a sudden, right. the rate got $20 lower. You also, you just have a way. Like, you really do. It's it's pretty cool. You kind of have a little gift. 
anyway. Thank you. So after, yeah, you're welcome. So honesty, I mean, we could talk about that. That was five mm-hmm. years. That was eight years. That was eight, eight years. Eight years of my life, yeah. So, I mean, there were a lot of things you learned, but you climbed that ladder and you kind of built the ladder and then climbed up it, it sounds like. Yeah, it was uh, an interesting eight-year run. Like when I got there, I was the 12th person there. And mm-hmm. to just see the kind of growth and then the interest from Coca-Cola, the acquisition happened about fourth or fifth year I was there. Wow. So I also got to see three years post-Coke acquisition, which was... right. I learned so much from it. It was so, so awesome to see the other side of the coin and yeah. how these large corporations operate from f- internally. What uh, do you think, if you had to, would be like the biggest sort of lesson or learning experience or the biggest sort of thing you took from the time at Honest? Um, you know, obviously what I mentioned before about human discretion and, mm-hmm. and never, never taking that for granted. And um, the other thing for me is really, you know, not always, but sometimes it's better to beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. Yeah. And you can go a long way doing that. Especially when you're, you know, when you're a small company that's just been acquired by a big company. And, you know, depending on that company, they have different ways of handling, um, you know, new, new venture brands in, in their house. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've just got to be willing to be the pirate um, yeah. in, in their ocean. Because if you just go by, can I do this? No. Can I do this? No. Right. And if you just keep asking for permission, you're going to get stonewalled a lot of the times. Because yep. um, a lot of times when you're dealing with Coca-Cola legal, it's like they're just yeah. they're just looking to CYA. Right, they, exactly. You know, they're just going <laughs> to defer to no, even though you, there could be a creative way to do it. And, right. Um, so that was interesting. And, and even, you know, fast forwarding to Sir Kensington's yeah. where we eventually got acquired by Unilever, it was really interesting to see the differences between Coke and Unilever and how they handled acquiring a brand and I'm what sure. their whole approach was to the brand. It was it was pretty some pretty stark co- contrast there. Did you, um, when you went to Sir Kensington's, so did, you left Honest and you were ready for something new, presumably, and you wanted to grow something again a little bit? Yeah, I left Honest, um, got to the point where, you know, I really wanted to jump headfirst into something again and, um, you know, just go all out for one brand. And, you know, mm-hmm. for me, it had to be a brand that I was a consumer of. And, right. you know, I, it really doesn't matter if, if some energy drink Rockstar or Monster were to come to me and offer me, like, it really wouldn't matter how much they'd offer me because I right. wouldn't. You know, it's tough being in film marketing and trying to tell people to drink something that you wouldn't drink or right. consume. It's hypocritical. Totally. At, at, at its, you know. And so you, I mean, I know you, seriously, it's sort of legendary. Like you, I mean, the folklore has it, basically, <laughs> that the plan was let's get to be sort of like the number one ketchup at Whole Foods. Yep. And that you basically did that. That's what the rumor is, that you sort of like, just built the heck out of it and sampled the heck out of it and made friends with every single Whole Foods buyer and slept there and helped (laughs) them unpack and gave them your firstborn children. And I mean, so tell me, I'm sure there's like, that's a little exaggerated. Yeah, there's a lot to that story. But yeah, I mean, we identified the natural channels being like, you know, we need to win in the natural channel and succeed to start winning and conventional and, and to really get the brand to the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously there, we could talk about Whole Foods for hours on its own and yeah. kind of what they used to be and what uh, that transition that's been happening over the last few years, mm-hmm. even way before Amazon came into the picture, yes. this whole notion of centralization. And But we, we identified the natural channel with Whole Foods being the lead is like, we need to win here. We need mm-hmm. to do whatever it takes to win here. Almost kind of like pushing the snowball to the top of the hill to, right. to then get it over and start the avalanche. And so we, we decided, and when I say we, it was me, Mark, Scott, the whole senior manager team, we decided mm-hmm. to just over-invest in Whole Foods. Right. And we knew that if, if we were if we would win in Whole Foods and we were acquiring all those consumers there and gaining shelf space and gaining share, 
that that would create so much momentum, not only within natural, but way past natural. So we built a field marketing team um, in eight markets around the country, all in-house, you know, so all W-2 full-time salaried yep. employees. And, uh, you know, the, the important thing when you're building an internal field marketing team, in my opinion, especially early on, is that you can't just look for experience and, and, uh, and skills. It's got to be culture fit and, right. and kind of personality, personality and fit. Yeah. Um, and so I wouldn't tell you to hire someone who's a culture fit but can't capability-wise do the job. Right. But you've got to value the culture fit just as much as, as the experience and the skills. And, you know, sometimes I'd rather find someone who's a great culture fit, who has the capability and, 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 the, and, the, and the smarts, right. but might not be experienced. It might just need to be trained. Yeah, I mean, it's not something that a lot of people are. I mean, it's also something, I mean, I'm 46. I'm not going to be a good hire for that job, right? You're running around. You're, like, on all the time. You're, you know, you're, you're kind of hustling, right? <laughs> So not to say that it's that someone my age couldn't do it, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's unlikely that there are a lot of people with a lot of experience doing it who really want to be good, you know, doing it, who are good at it. Like it's it's sort of right. Yeah, it's, it is. I mean, field excited. marketing for a company like that does involve a lot of uh, a lot of erratic work. So like weekends, holidays, a lot a lot of peak times for consumers mm -hmm. are what are typically off peak for regular office people mm -hmm. are peak times for field marketing. It's right. when people are out. You want to hit them. Um, so yeah, I mean, typically it is a pretty grueling job and, you know, I have found for, for the most part, people kind of in the first half of their career, you'll, you'll see, right. um, yes. be more excited and use field marketing as a stepping stone to get right. into brand marketing, to get into sales. Um, right. but yeah, when we, when we built this team at Sir Kensington, it was eight really passionate field managers that we went out of our way to make sure that, that the thought of standing in Whole Foods for three, four hours to them was like, cool. Yeah. And they would get giddy about it. Like, wait, I get to yeah. see behind the curtain at Whole Foods. Yeah. I get to go in the back. Like when you find people who are excited by that, it's like, all right, I can teach you how to sample. As long as you've got the personality and, and the work ethic, right. you can teach everything else. You can't teach that. So we built this team. We muscled it up over three years, going from 400 demos a year to 3,000 to oh 6,000. 6,000 demos a year? 6,000 demos a year, yeah. You know, oh in the God. category that w we were in, a condiment, which is center right. of store, pretty slow velocity. Yep. Um, it's not like chips or drinks where you're right. buying one or two a day. The demos really went a long way to, to just start creating some 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 like aggressive inertia and momentum right. with our sales and velocities. And you know, while we were in the stores, the focus was like, yeah, let's sample, let let's reach as many consumers as possible and make them aware of it, get them to try it for the first time, and get them to buy it for the first right. time. That was kind of the goal. Like, let's get them through that funnel. Right. But on the other side it was also like, let's connect with these grocery managers right. and let's let's go out of our way to like befriend them. And, you know, as we say to Sir Kensington's homie it out with them, right. uh, we call it the homie factor. It was just a way to kind of put, put some, put some text uh, to the approach of going in right. store and trying to get more mindshare from these guys. So that would include just coming in at 7am with like coffee and donuts and yep. not, not asking for anything, right. just there to build a relationship. Yep. You know, we were, we were constantly at these overnight resets, whether our category is being reset or not, oh you know, when, when you want to, when you want to be able to, to ask something of a grocery manager, you know, right. you, you better support them as well. So it's we always viewed it as like a partnership. We didn't want to be vendors. We wanted to be like partners and homies. Right. So we went out of our way to just demo a lot, um, really create these relationships. You know, at the time things were a little bit more wild west in Whole yes. Foods. So you we, could do that. You could we were sleep able over to. Oh Foods. yeah. Yeah. And so we were able to leverage all these demos and all these relationships right. for a lot of displays. Yeah. That's I mean, so cool. my team and I, you know, I didn't sell a single one of those displays, and it was all my team, and they did such a good job. That's amazing. We ended up getting something like 500 incremental displays um, on the perimeter of the store, and wow. that year our sales just exploded, and we went global at Whole Foods, and right. before you know it. 
we were in a position where we were able to pull back off Whole Foods and start applying the film marketing team to to conventional and club and, and other channels um, and even getting out of store a little bit more. Right. Um, so That's yeah, so it was, we just kind of got that snowball to the top of the hill with Whole Foods. When if you look at a one year P and L, how much we invested in Whole Foods versus right. how much we made, like we lost money. Yeah. But it was but a de- it was a deliberate trade plan. anyway. I feel yeah. like that's just how marketing is. Right. You know? And especially for an account like Whole Foods, that is really such a it's such a contagious account. Like right. success there breeds success outside of it. And yes. A lot of people look to Whole Foods. So yeah. for us, we saw it as a deliberate overinvestment. Yeah. Um, and and it worked out. No, it's amazing. And now. You're at Good Culture. Now I'm at Good Culture, yes. So tell us about the cottage cheese changing cottage cheese. So Good Culture is a, is a premium dairy brand that started in cottage cheese and has mm-hmm. been uh, kind of lighting lighting up that category for the for the past three years. Um, and now we've kind of ventured into to widening our portfolio into just overall dairy. Oh, cool. So we just launched a sour cream. Awesome. Um, and we've got some really cool innovation in the works that... <laughs> probably a few weeks from being able to speak about, but right. another two to three categories that are just going to kind of further widen our brand as, as, a, as a better Amazing. dairy company. Well, they're lucky to have you, and I'm psyched for all of you. We're going to take a little break, and then when we come back, we're going to talk nitty-gritty on how founders should really think about field marketing, build their teams, and what the objectives should be. Awesome. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Hi, I'm back with Pat Jamey, a marketer extraordinaire. One of the reasons I'm so happy you're here is because I don't think most founders understand the disconnect between getting their products on the shelf and getting them off the shelf. So, you know, when I was first starting to sell the sauces, I was definitely kind of ringing the bell the minute that someone took them, you know, Whole Foods wanted to put in a PO, I rang the bell. Fresh Direct wanted to put in a PO, I rang the bell. You don't realize that you don't really ring the bell until like they actually go off the shelf, right? So I think a lot of people sort of think like, I'm going to open doors, I'm going to open doors, and I'm going to get buyers to like me. But there's something that then has to happen once you're in the door, right? Once you're on the shelf. Um, And that's where I think that the field marketing really comes in into play, yeah. right? So if you were gonna just sort of like have Field Marketing 101 and you had a bunch of founders sitting in front of you, which you could probably do and make a lot of money doing, what would be sort of, how would you how would you sort of talk about it? How would you want a founder to think about it, to budget for it? What would be the main objective of it? 
Yeah. So, I mean, right off the bat, I think you touched on it right there. It's uh, when you think about starting a business and yeah, you got the PO. Okay. Yeah. I can make it, I can get it to them and I can be profitable. Like, you know, I can make margin on it. Cool. Mm -hmm. That's only half of the story. So we always think of things in terms of push and pull. Mm -hmm. And what you're talking about is the push. You're pushing product into the store, into the back door, onto the shelves. And then the real important, the most important piece after that is obviously pull, is making it pull off the shelf and go out the mm-hmm. front door of the store. And that's that's where the magic happens, when you have a, a good push and pull coming in and out of the store. And when you think about pull, obviously there's more kind of, there's some of those higher altitude levers that you can pull to create pull, like having great packaging right. um, is a great way to just create organic pull. But sometimes when you're in a new store and your awareness is low, you've got to go in and pull some of those manual levers, which right. which is where field marketing kind of comes in. Um, so when you're thinking about field marketing, you know, I kind of mentioned it before, but for me, it's got to be prescriptive. Mm-hmm. It can't just be, okay, we want to do field marketing. What's the standard, what's, what's the standard program? Right. Stand at a table and like put a little cup of sauce in front of people and be like, buy this. Right. Yeah. Or like, we're, let's go sponsor a bunch of big events. And, right. you know, if your distribution isn't at a certain point, I've never found it to be, or you have like a direct to consumer business business. Um, that's a different situation. But if your distribution isn't big enough, it doesn't make sense to spend a lot of money outside of the store. Right. I've always found early on, you've got to spend money in the store. Mm-hmm. So field marketing, as I see it, is really a support department. It, it should not be a standalone department. It's a department and I've seen it live in sales. I've seen it live in, in marketing. Right. I've seen it live in sales and then go to marketing. Yeah. As the for me, grows. I don't have marketing. So it lives in sales. For right. Me. right. And that's totally fine because field marketing should be connected at the hip with sales. Right. I mean, Field marketing it should never be a standalone department. It should always be strategically. A field marketing strategy should derive from a sales strategy and a brand strategy. Mm-hmm. So on one side, the sales strategy is, okay, where are, we, where are we trying to pull levers? Where are we trying to create some some early success and velocity? Um, you know, and that, that's really important on the sales side. Yeah. And I have a feeling I know your answer to this, but there are external teams. There are merchandising teams and demo teams, and there are field marketing teams for hire out there. I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, but thoughts for founders on money well spent, internal versus external, and how how to hire. Like, how, how would you build your team? If you were starting on day one, you have someone doing sales, let's say you have someone dealing with supply chain and operations, would you hire a field marketing person? Like, what? how would you think about it? Or um, would you outsource? You know, it really, it really all depends. There's so many variables in terms of what is what is the talent on that current team look like? Um, what's, what's your budget? Um, you know, again... No I'll, one has any money. Okay, so Just, nobody... Yeah, yeah, nobody has any money. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, zero. <laughs> early on with field marketing, I mean, I, I love bringing... I mean, for me, I'm a big proponent of having it in-house as mm-hmm. opposed to, to outsourcing it. And th- listen, there's no... You know, some people want to run a company a little bit leaner and they want to outsource everything, and that's totally fine. But when you're in a category like like natural foods and something that really takes a lot of education and really you know you're really fishing in certain waters, you really have to be targeted. Mm-hmm. Um, I just find hiring internal teams gives you so much, allows you to be so much more nimble. Um, if you're an organization that's in early stage growth and you expect to continue growing, hiring people that are passionate about your brand that can grow with your brand is, yep. is so valuable. Yeah. So for me, you know, internal field marketing. If you think about field marketing of you know that it's got to be profitable with each day and each demo and right. it's got to pay for itself in the one month view and the one year view, it's going to be kind of tough, right? No I mean, obviously there's there's right. scenarios and ways where stars can align where it can't do that. But in my mind, that that's the wrong thinking for it. Right. You know, field marketing is really to create advocates, to create loyalty oil consumers to find them to drive trial. So when you're doing that, you, you, you want to think about, you know, think about this. You're at a demo, 
and you sample to 200 people. Mm -hmm. And I might have to sell 200 units to break even on that demo, right? right? Probably unlikely, unless it's just like super nuts. Right. Um, but if I, even if I sell 50 jars in a demo, right? And the hope is that 50 people bought it for the first time and that, you know, round numbers here, let's say half of them liked mm -hmm. it and they're going to come back and buy it. Yep. That's 25 other jars. And let's say out of those 25 people, half of those are going to start buying it every week. Right. And so now those 12 people times 12 months, uh, you know, times whatever, how right. many weeks are left in the year. Right. So you more, I mean, almost like kind of direct to consumer, you want to think about it in terms of like the annual value of a right. customer. Um, and not only the annual value of them, and, and this is where it's tough because you get a lot of these founders that are just data nerds and they want to see the data, they want right. to see the numbers and the ROI. But once once they've sampled it and I've sold them their first one, I, it's you can't really, you lose the ability to track, to track that them. consumer's journey right. sure. and how much have they returned to you. So for me, you know, if you've got a really high quality product that has a lot of points of difference in its category mm -hmm. and you want to go find like your lowest hanging fruit, like you're loyal, you're most likely to be loyal consumers, I think field marketing is one of the, the most targeted and effective ways to do it. And specifically demos. Specifically demos right. where, like I said earlier on, like the, the, the more limited your distribution is and the less right. places that people can buy it, right. the more you Start should focus on making the places where they can buy it right. succeed and turn. Because yes. you know, velocity breeds velocity and success. If it starts working there, your distributor is going to take notice, other right. accounts are going to take notice, and it starts to snowball. So I have a pretty like specific question, right? So at Whole Foods, we sell anywhere from, you know, let's say our best weeks, we sell over 40 units a week. And for a sauce, that's pretty good. Yeah. Over three SKUs. So let's say it's, um, you know, it's a case and a half right. per unit and per SKU. And at the other stores that aren't Whole Foods, we do not sell that much. Um, we're always a little bit confused if we should double down on the stores that are doing well for us, or if we should try to bring those other stores kind of up and how would you think about, like, do you have sort of like a, you do your top five, you do your bottom five, and you let your middle 25 <laughs> sit? Or like, do you have a way to think about that? Or Yeah, I mean, so resources and budget aside, right? Putting yeah. that aside, I mean, just in general, talking in general terms, I've always found it, uh, you know, you want to fish where the fish are. Fish where so the if, fish so are. So if you've got 30 Whole Foods in a region, and, you know, you can realistically, you know, you're looking at the top 10 of those Whole Foods, those top 10 Whole Foods in your region, you're probably going to have more, the ability to, they're going to have more foot traffic. They're, they're, right. they're just going to be selling more. You're going to have more of an opportunity to create like a significant like in uptick in sales yes. and velocities right off the bat. Right. Um, and that's just gonna, like when you think about if you're fishing, right? I mean, you, you want to go where there's fish. as many fish as yeah. possible, right? And so, <laughs> so eventually point. there comes a point where like, you know, um, the whole notion of squeaky wheel gets the grease, mm -hmm. um, but it should be it shouldn't be a wheel true. that's that has no chance of ever right. not squeaking, if you will. So, right. oftentimes, I've always found success in like really focusing on like the lowest hanging fruit, and let's say it's yep. the top third of stores. Yep. And once you've seen like some significant gains in those, we would start to kind of cycle in other stores from from the middle third. Right. And uh, and we would closely watch the the first set of stores that to we backed sure off of slipping. to see, like, okay, is there an yep. increased baseline? Yep. No, even if they slip, it's natural. Right. But as long as the baseline is significantly higher than it was before, then right. that, that's sustainable organic growth. Yeah. And now if we can get all the baselines up, I mean, right. that's really when you think about how do you measure field marketing and the efficacy of, of a big demo program, because um, you lose the ability to, to track people's like annual or lifetime value. Right. I mean, I always like to think about this concept of like the overall rising tide of sales. Yep. And like, you know, you, there's certain metrics you can look at to really see, okay, is this organic growth? Yeah. Um, you know, one really good metric is same, same skew year over year sales. 
Right. So that means... We have that this week. Right. This is our first week of having a year over year. Nice. <laughs> it's, our first, it's our like first full year. So now you'll be able to comp them and see yes, how it's going. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's sometimes when, when you see growth and you're like, oh, look, we did demos, things are growing. But if it's from like new distribution right. um, or new SKUs like that, it's definitely something that, that you want to take into account. And when you look at the same SKU year over year, you can yeah. really tell, okay, these have been in here for a year and we've been sampling them. Have the people that are trying them picked them up regularly? Right. Are they starting to really buy into it? And that that's re- that's usually a really good measure. Right. Um, and then how, I mean, are, what do you think, I mean, for people, because most people that are listening to this, they're not doing much more than demos. Like this is, this is the sort of the size. Um, how much should demos cost and what makes a good demo? And I mean, okay, yes, we can't give, we can't say, we can't put an exact value to if a demo has been successful because we can't track that customer necessarily going forward. But there should be, there are probably some guidelines. Right. What are the big no-nos in a demo? And what are the big sort of like, you should definitely try to achieve this? Well, so obviously the most important thing with any plan, any business, anything is the people, right? So yep. the people that you're hiring for your demos, I can have the best field marketing team. I can have the best product. But if I have a really bad brand ambassador standing behind the table like none of that really matters because yeah. that's the touch that's where the tire touches the road with consumers in a with your sampling is, is the sampler so and how did you find people as good as you like what was it in them was it just like you just met them and you just got a good vibe or well you know one thing it's the waters you're fishing in right so where you and i keep using fishing analogies no, I i'm like, not a, I'm I not mean, a big fisher baseball but I, and yeah. Fishing. yeah. <laughs> um, but so it, it's where, where are you looking for them where are you recruiting um you know most people just like throw ads up on craigslist and you can find some gold there every once in a while, but you usually have to sift through a lot, yeah, um, yes. a lot of other stuff. So, I mean, we're, at Sir Kensington's, it was all about bringing integrity and charm to ordinary and overlooked food. We were very mm-hmm. much in the world of food, um, from food service operators, restaurants, to grocery stores. Mm-hmm. Um, and condiments, as you know, being an ingredient that rarely ever stand on their own, right. and they have to go with something. So yep. we were saw ourselves right in the middle of this whole food world. So for us, we were like, we need to find people that are passionate about cooking, passionate about food, and just passionate about natural, the natural foods industry in general. Mm-hmm. Again, if you can find a sampler who's like, uh, stand, you're going to pay me to stand in a Whole Foods and talk to you four hours? Sure, sign me up. Right. Like, You want people who are just going to just organically be motivated and you know you've all seen them you've all walked up to these samplers in oh, certain stores and they yeah. don't even they don't even look up no. they're just like <laughs> passing you something they're like regurgitating I'm one line I'm a person line. who ends up buying that thing because <laughs> I I feel bad <laughs> for like the person cuz they're not making any sales and I also feel bad for the company that hired that person so I'm the winner who has like the random tea in my <laughs> pantry or like I'm seriously like I'm you should never you I am the worst because I buy everything that anyone's sampling just out of guilt oh, I don't man. even have to like it usually I don't and actually when I don't like it that's when I buy it well, then I feel well, so really what do you bad. do when you come across a good sampler um <laughs> there there haven't been that many I there was one there was a great sampler from um the North Carolina peanut butter company she, Big Spoon Roasters Big Spoon. she was great Thanks. I don't know where she is now, but if you're listening, Big Spoon, <laughs> hit us up. Hit us yeah. up. Um, so going back to what are the sort of big no-nos and the big yes-yeses? Well, yeah. So so when you think about a demo, people. first off is, is people is the most important part of it. Um, you asked what an average demo should cost. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I mean, you always want to try and make them as efficient as possible while optimizing how you're going to look, how you're going to be able to, how much product you're actually going to be able to sample. 
So for me in my past, I've always seen it between 100 and 150 dollars. Right. That's not including all the overhead of having like salaries and in-house. It's just the actual cost of a demo right. with the part-time sampler. And, and so you're saying don't expect to sell $150 worth of product. And if you don't, that's okay. It doesn't make it well, yeah, necessarily. I mean, I, I think you can expect to sell $150 worth of product through Whole Foods Register. But you're as a company, uh, you're not going to make $150 profit on that's that. That's a lot. I mean, I don't think we've... I mean, what's... What's 20 times 8? 160. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So that's about our average, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but then when you, if, you, if you really drill down and you think, okay, what's my average margin? and what, Yeah. Then, then you can really drill down and you'll see it's, it's almost not going to be profitable. Right, yes. Um, I've heard a couple of, of couple of like exceptions. I know the Bonza guys. They, they do, crush it. They go pretty nuts, especially yeah. when one of those founders gets behind the table. They'll sell like two or 300 cases, uh, boxes. Yeah. And that's a profitable demo, but uh. that's not a demo that you can do 6,000 times around the country. Right, no. Um, but that, that should, you know, that you should always strive for that and always right. try and get better. But at the end of the day, if you're in the mindset of like, I'm trying to find people that are going to be like frequent users and mm -hmm. I want to find them and, and get my product in their hands and get yep. them to taste it. When you have a good product, I mean... The conversion after that, you've almost got to like trust it. You know, it's yep. like it's like Wayne's World. If if you book them, they will come. Yes. <laughs> if you sample them, they will purchase eventually. Yes. So, other than Bonza, are there other companies that you think are doing a really good job at it that you've seen? Um, well, Kensington's aside, um, yeah. I think you know I'm just getting into it. I've been only here for one week, but Good Culture has a pretty significant sampling uh, program, so I'm excited to get right. in there and kind of get my hands dirty with oh, it. But um, they've been doing a great job. They their sales numbers are really impressive. And for the no nos, don't have someone who's on their phone. Don't have someone who doesn't like the yes. product. Well, what I'd else? say I'd say one no no is uh, I mean the biggest no no you can do is not not connecting the demo to sales and to the sales team because the worst thing you could have is you're paying a sampler to go to a store and they get there and there's like five units on the shelf. That's right. that's like murder for it. I mean, there's like no point in showing up at that point. Yeah. So really making sure, I mean, the whole point of the demo, the whole point of field marketing in general is mm -hmm. to create incrementality. Now, especially with the demo, you're trying to create incremental sales. You're trying to get incremental customers. And if the product's just not on the shelf, then you just, no matter how good, you, you just have no shot. That was actually a challenge for us with Whole Foods at the beginning. Because we weren't on the planogram, as much as we would say, please order up, you know, we're coming in for a demo, they didn't really want to have extra inventory right. and they didn't necessarily know that we were going to sell a lot. So we ended up having a bunch of demos where we were out of stock. And we didn't even have like a coupon or anything. We were just like, come back and try it again. I mean, right. it really almost probably really pissed people off actually. it doesn't and at that point i mean if there's nothing on the shelf for them to buy then just go like the, the winning scenario is not possible right yeah when you talk to someone they love it they want to buy one it's almost a let like you said it almost turns into letdown yeah. so i've had scenarios i mean when you've got a sampler and you know i've always been big on if you're committing to a sampler that we want you to work for four hours and they get to the store and, and it's the product's not there and it's not their fault yeah that they should get paid anyway yeah so oftentimes we've we've had like kind of plan b's in place for whenever that happens especially early on in the life cycle of a store right. or a program where it is maybe is a little more likely and we would just have two to three other stores ready for them to go merchandise oh so you can't do the demo that's such a good go idea. hit these other two or three stores yeah. there's a demo at this store in a week let's make sure that one's set and you know this doesn't seem it seems kind of obvious but like when you really lean into it this, this kind of works too is when you send someone to a store and there's not product there, you better make sure that you leverage that with the grocery guy and you get some sympathy out of it. Yeah. Because they're going to feel bad about it. And the more you make them realize that, listen, like, I'm, you know, you don't want to get mad at them. You right. should say, hey, what can I do next time to, to help to make this easier? How can I make sure this? And if you really drill that, right. I mean, a lot of it is education. And, you know, early on with Sir Kensington's, 
they would have eight to 10 bottles on the shelf. And I, yeah. you know, we'd come in and say, no, we need like 30 to 40 on the shelf. We're right. going to rip this through the shelf. And they almost like didn't believe you. No, they didn't believe And us when it the happens beginning. a few times, you yeah. have to make sure to go like, kind of give them like a very polite, I told you so. Yeah. And like, let's work together. So in the future, there's not only enough product for the demo, but enough for when I leave. Right. Um, and so if you're really using that, you know, you can, you can just throw a little bit of education and a little bit of a relationship with them. Um, you can really kind of have those dwindle down over time. Before we finish up, I want to hear any advice that you might have for people founding new companies, people sort of out there responsible for marketing their brands. You know, what would you say are your sort of big, you know? I mean, I, I think above all else, um, I think people are paramount. And I've said it before, mm-hmm. but I think just overinvest in finding good people. Sometimes they're they're current fans. Sometimes they're in your network. I mean, the smaller you are, oftentimes, um, I mean, you know, with Sir Kensington's, it, this was a situation where I, I knew Mark and Scott before, and mm-hmm. we were kind of we you know we like, kind of friends, if you will. Um, but so it was a situation where I was there already, and like so early on, when you're thinking about hiring people, like hire passionate people, right. hire people that are cultural fits. Um, as long as they have the intangibles that you can't teach, like the hard work ethic, like the, the passion like you could teach them most of this other stuff. And you know, sometimes when you have people who are a little bit light on experience, they're also light on bad, on bad habits yep. and you can form those habits and teach right. them how to do it your way. So I think my advice would be find good people and then keep them good by like really investing in the culture right. and really making sure that, you know, hitting a sales number is not the only, although hitting sales numbers are great and it cures a lot of things. Yep. Um, making sure people are happy and excited to come to work. Um, you know, I'd honestly, I always used to say, you know, it's not work if you're having fun. And if you could just create an environment where people are having fun and they don't feel like they're working, yep. then like magical things happen early on. And all those people before you know it, five years later, will be half of them will be on your senior management team yeah. and, and they'll grow with the company. And having, when you get to be this, you know, when you get to be a larger size and you have the institutional knowledge, the cultural knowledge of someone who's been with you since the beginning and they're kind of a leading voice it i think it can be very helpful in keeping keeping a company's mission true and staying connected to you know what was the genesis of this why did we start this so do you think there's a place i mean is there is is there a field guide to field marketing anywhere like you know for a lot of us we we have good people that have a lot of heart we just don't know what's possible you know we don't know what's expected we don't know how to talk to buyers and stores or we've never you know, I I didn't know what a route ride was until, you know, like six months in when Doris told me that I hadn't done one and I didn't know that I was supposed to, you know, I mean, is there, I mean, is it the kind of thing that you just need to learn from a mentor or someone who's done it before and it's just passed down knowledge kind of? You know, I mean, I'm not sure of any, of any, uh, yeah, like, there's a like book for you to write. Feel marketing, um, <laughs> one-on-one handbooks for like the natural CPG space. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's something where as soon as you write the book, half of it would be out of date, um, just with right. the way things are changing. So I think it's more of a mentality. It's more of like the, these larger, broader concepts of like finding your consumers, creating trial and awareness, yeah. converting, hiring passionate people, having kind of a don't be afraid to fail, go big attitude, beg for forgiveness, not for permission. Right. Just, uh, you know, just being Those aggressive. Those are some very good yeah. tenets. Yeah. Those are great. What's the most fun you've had? I know you've had a lot of fun because you are a guy who just looks at life that way. But can you remember before we go just like a win, like one particular like Ah, this is yeah, great. I would say the two biggest kind of campaigns where I was just like, oh man, I can't believe I'm getting paid for this. This is yeah. work. Um, one was at Honesty. It was a, it was actually a campaign that stretched five years. It was called Honest Cities and then uh-huh. eventually Honesty Index. 
it was a social experiment that we just started like when we were launching Coca-Cola in San Francisco, we just mm -hmm. started this on the streets just to make a video, just to get the distributor excited the next day. Right. And it ended up turning into like this national campaign. It was just um, unmanned pop-up stores where we were selling honesty for a dollar on the honor system. Uh huh. And there was like a big clear Honest. money box in the middle of it. Right. And we would hide in the background and we would we would keep track of who was stealing and who was paying. Oh my gosh. And then at the end of this, you know, it, this was like a few cities the first year and then it, it eventually grew to the point where in-house with our field marketing right. team at Honesty, we didn't hire an agency for this, um, for the actual execution. We went to all 50 states oh my in 10 days and did 10 hour activations in each state because it's an experiment, right? right. So you, you, everything's got to be controlled. Oh my gosh. And, we did, and then we released this like infographic and the whole goal of this was really to get press. And That's we got, so we got pick up in 49 out of 50 states and we spent maybe like six or 700 grand on it and got like five, $6 million worth of earned media out That's of it. That's amazing. Also yeah. like genius. It was, it was a lot That's of fun. like experiential marketing to the, yeah. like before there was a thing called experiential like, marketing. Exactly. All right, that and, was one and then the second. And so the guy I did that with at Honesty is actually now my new boss at Good Culture. Oh, no way. He's Jesse Merrill, the founder of Good Culture. And it was him and I. He's the one that hired me as an intern at Honesty back that in the day. That is so, so cool. So this Good Culture, it's a little bit of a reunion of sorts, yeah. which, which is awesome. The second one, real quick, was with Sir Kensington's. Yeah. You know, selling condiments. You got to find something for the condiments to go on. Right. Um, got to find a way to, to be impactful, to be loud, to get it to events and retailers all over the country. Right. So we did a food truck. Yes. We did the a fries. Fri we did a fry yeah. truck, and it was awesome. I mean, yeah. we uh, we did it with this agency called Pro Mobile Kitchen, who are, I mean, if you're ever thinking about doing a, a food truck, you <laughs> have to call these guys. They handle everything from soup to nuts. And wow. we just went around the country. We took this thing. It was basically a billboard on wheels that yeah. was pumping out hot fries. Totally. Um, we went to retailer headquarters, to actual stores, to events. Just, you know, we would go to Union Square and give out seven and a half thousand fry cones in like six hours. It's amazing. And it was insane. It was just so much fun to see fries just flowing out of the truck and <laughs> and people just like loving it. You know, when, yeah. you, when you're passionate about a brand and you're like surrounded by people who are just like loving yeah. what you do, it's like, it's the biggest compliment yeah. in the world. You're like the Beatles. Exactly. You're like the Yankees. <laughs> All right, Mr. Yankee. Uh, thank you for thank coming. You. Um, so that is it for the first episode of this third season of the podcast. Um, thank you, Pat, so much for coming. Good luck at Good Culture. Again, like they're... Lucky to have you. You're a rock star. Um, I'm so excited for the incredible guests that are coming on in future weeks. We have a, um, a representative from UNFI coming. We have John Lawson from Johnny Whole Law. Foods coming. Becca from Becca PR. A bunch of other founders and entrepreneurs. I have my outsourced CFO coming to talk about <laughs> good financial practices because those are very important people. Um, and a lot of people with a lot of experience and so much we can learn from. As always, Matt, it's so good. We're reunited, and I'm so happy about it. Thank you for being such a great engineer. And we'll see you next time on In the Sauce. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? 
rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.